Before we made it to the end of the year, um, I believe this is episode 169, and uh, I'm recording it out of sequence, so it's a bit, a little confusing, but that's all right. Uh, it's always the last uh, episode, well, has been the last few years that I just go on a review of stuff that I have liked. So we'll look at movies first, and then we'll look at music, and then probably a bit bigger section will be books, um, which I'll get to because I've read a lot of books, probably more books this year than I've ever read before. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk about um, thanking everyone for listening in. Probably the most, well, the longest run we've gone on uh, without really having a break. Might have been an episode here and there that we, or a week that we missed. But in the on the whole, we've pretty much done six months straight of episodes so we may have a little break again i'm recording this at the start of december so i may have already recorded more episodes or organized it but we might have a little break after this one and this might be um, out of context anyway so let's get down to it and talk about movies I mean, has to be said, it was a very good year for movies in terms of like box office and getting everyone there. Everyone knows, like the main reason for that was um, Barbenheimer, I guess you want to call it, uh, which was August or July, August. Remember that? Where everyone was going to see two movies, whether it was Barbie or Oppenheimer. I stayed off online discourse about those things. I don't need to be uh, on in one camp or the other. I don't need to read why... One is more valuable than the other. I don't need to read about, um, I don't know, I saw a headline where, you know, Oppenheimer made half the amount of money as Barbie, but that's an even more impressive achievement. So I don't need to read that. It just tends to annoy people. But uh, clearly that was like the two biggest movies of the year in terms of um, cultural crossover and cultural attention. Um, I listened to uh, the Big Picture podcast in the last few days where they said that the two, no, three biggest movies of the year, Barbie, Oppenheimer, and can you guess the third one? What was the third biggest movie? I haven't seen it. The Mario Brothers movie. Um, it was the first time since 2001 where the top three movies weren't a sequel or a remake. That's pretty crazy. That's, uh, I mean... Having said that, like Barbie, you'll probably get a sequel, and the uh, Mario Brothers movie will definitely get a sequel. But to think, like, for 20 odd years, all we've had is series of film, series of film, whether it was Harry Potter, whether it was Lord of the Rings, whether it was in particular Marvel for the last 15 years, that seems to be moving away. But you never know, it's always just going to be replaced by something else. But it was, um, yeah, good to, to have, hey, here are two sort of original stories that uh didn't feel like they were being written in in ai land or by like here are the things we need to do to make a good movie i'm sure that was part of it uh but i i saw barbie twice i went with um justine and then i took my daughters a few weeks later and uh yeah it's a remarkable movie that one isn't it it's uh so entertaining and so funny and you know Ryan Gosling as Ken is great, but um, Margot Robbie, I, especially watching it the second time, that last scene with Rhea Perlman, I don't know, it could be and probably should be 
really lame. Like it's the writing's not great, and it's just like, oh, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult, and you want to know what it's like to be alive. I've seen that. I've seen that in a movie. But anyway, um, for some reason, even the second time, even knowing that the writing's not great, you still, I, I don't know, still feel myself like, oh yeah, poor Barbie, she's gonna make that decision. Uh, I mean, it was clear, like watching it the first time, so much fun. The the last line in the movie, and then ending, um, didn't take a genius to be like, oh, this is gonna be a phenomenon, clearly. Uh, but you know, is is was anything funnier in the year than the Matchbox Twenty guitar playing scene on the beach? When we came out of that movie. Justine said, have you ever done that to a girl? And I said, oh, I didn't really play guitar. She said, if you had a guitar, would you have done that? And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, 100%, every every party I went to in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was always some dickhead with a guitar making uncomfortable eye contact while I was playing. Anyway, uh, Oppenheimer. The weird thing about Oppenheimer is I... And bear with me. I watched Amadeus for the first time. Amadeus is from, like early 80s, I want to say 1984, but I could be wrong, uh, which is all about Mozart and Salieri. Uh, and then like a couple of days later, I watched Oppenheimer and, and the uh, character Robert Downey Jr. plays it. It's just like Salieri in Amadeus. Like it's the same kind of story of someone who is the supposed ally that turns out not to be. Um, I had a lot of problems with the last hour of that movie i was like why am i watching this and why has this become a courtroom drama and oh look it's mr robot turning up to freak everyone out with a reveal i just was like this is a different movie uh but the real problem of oppenheimer especially that last hour is when they do the actual manhattan test and you see the bomb go off in slow motion and all its horrible beauty I found myself like thinking about all of like humanity and the history of humans leading to this point where we could destroy ourselves and is that our destiny to like end our own lives and then I had to sit through an hour of like a courtroom drama and I think that's the real problem with Oppenheimer is you can't make me consider the entire history of humanity and then go Ooh, he's a he's a sneaky man behind the behind the curtain here. I don't know. That's all I wanted to say about that. Um, I don't, I don't know about. I was going through this list. And I didn't really have like a favorite movie, so I'm just going to run through some of the things that we saw. I mean, literally last night we watched May December, which is um a really complex and sort of weird movie and kind of camp and funny and um based on a true story, you know, of a woman who had an affair with her 12-year-old, um, or 12-year-old, and then had his baby, and then went to jail, and when they came out of jail, got married, and had their own kids, it's all based on a true story, and it's, um, Todd Haynes, who, you know, Todd Haynes made, um, Far From Heaven, which I really loved, and he also made, um, I'm Not There, which was this sort of weird sort of uh, experimental biopic of Bob Dylan where different people played him, and I found that tedious and so self-absorbed. So you don't really know what you're going to get with Todd Haynes, whether it's going to be intricate and 
and uh, morally ambiguous, I guess. Anyway, that was a good movie. Um, Justine and I went and watched the... You know, we didn't go and see Taylor Swift Eras, but we did go and see the 4K re-release of Talking Heads Stop Making Sense, which may be like my favourite cinema experience of the year just because it was so much fun and i mean i love i've always loved talking heads but to actually watch the concert in a theater with the you know music surround sound and the the way they designed the sound with the noise of the crowd was behind you that was super cool Uh, if you can find if you can see it somewhere that's great but i'm sure you'll be able to stream it at some point i mean you can find most of the original anyway on youtube uh, I watched The Killer again. That's David Fincher's new movie. I really enjoyed it. Uh, more thinking about it than actually watching it. When I was watching it, I was like, this voiceover is kind of annoying me. But when you think about it afterwards, you're like, oh, actually, the voiceover is wrong. And what he's saying is different to how he's behaving. When I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, but is a movie good enough to be like, oh, that's interesting. That makes it good. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I reacted to. Um, The other movie that I saw with my kids uh, at the cinema, which was surprisingly good, was the Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1, or whatever it is. It's obviously going to continue. As far as animation goes, a couple of times in that movie where I was like, people really took time and care on the design of this thing. Probably more than the writing of the thing. There were a couple of things in there where I'm like, so what, this is the plot now? I guess was the weird part. But, you know, both my kids thoroughly enjoyed it. And again, like the design of it is just spectacular. The the way that they're like, oh, I've I've seen lots of animated movies, but I've never seen anything that looked like this. Um, And it also probably has one of my favorite moments in any movie throughout the year which was just a quiet me- I, I just liked it when it was quiet um, that's a very old person to say why does a movie have to be so noisy this Spider-Man movie but some of the quiet moments I found surprisingly effective um, speaking of quiet uh, the movie that I think I enjoyed watching with my family the most was the version of Are You There God It's Me Margaret uh, both my girls uh a big Judy Bloom fans. I was a huge fan growing up, although I only really read Fudge and Tales of a Fourth Grade, nothing and nothing else. But I did have a hilarious friend who, when I was in year five, was like, you should read this book if you like those books. And that's probably where I learned about periods and actual puberty for girls. They gave it to me as a joke, thinking it would be, I would be embarrassed, but I was actually probably more scientific and had follow-up questions for them when I came back. Um, But the movie itself is just so much better than it deserves to be. It's, you know, it's a coming-of-age story set in the 70s. It doesn't rely on 70s things like, hey, look at this 70s thing, isn't that weird? Um, But it also does something with the parents that isn't in the book, um, which sort of gives the parents an inner life. And in particular, like Rachel McAdams plays Margaret's mother. And there's so much going on beneath the surface of this character that could just be, I'm an angry housewife. I'm a mother who's 
complicated relationship with her parent-in-laws is really weighing me down. But there's something else going on that is really subtle and, you know, nuanced for want of a better term. The, the problem is with this movie is I don't know where you can find it. You know, we were lucky to stumble upon it, but I don't know if it didn't get cinema release, which is just annoying because for a movie to play in a school holidays, it would have been such a nice, different thing to go and see that wasn't just a Pixar or a DreamWorks or or Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse or Marvel. It was just something that, I don't know, I'm going to sound like a wanker again, but it just has worth. It just has, you know, things to say and and um, real compassion for its characters, real empathy for not just the children, but also the parents just trying to navigate uh, what their dreams and hopes are and what they hope to achieve. Uh, I want to just also talk about the fact that I got to see a lot of Wes Anderson this year. You know, I love Wes Anderson. So Asteroid City... I watched with Justine at one point. She said, is this like the most Wes Anderson movie ever? And I said, it probably, it certainly seems that way. Like the color scheme and the design. Um, I think it comes down to, do you like Wes Anderson? Yes. Like this film. Do you like, no, nah, find him annoying. You won't like it. Um, it's, it's, I enjoyed watching it again for the second time, getting more out of it, which I always tend to do with Wes Anderson films. But also, um, he released all these short films on Netflix. The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, um, The Rat Catcher, The Swan, and um, Poison, uh, which I used a lot in class this year, which was just how you frame things and how you use, um, I don't know, metaphor to tell a story about a snake. Uh, but it also meant that my daughter really enjoyed those Netflix shows. And then we got to sit down and watch Moonrise Kingdom, which was Wes Anderson's 2011 movie. It's probably the most accessible for younger kids. Fantastic Mr. Fox, notwithstanding. Uh, but he also, um, yeah, makes it from the child's point of view. So now I open that gateway. I'm sure this summer holidays I'll say, well, now we're going to watch Grand Hotel Budapest and... Oh, you like that? Well, <laughs> here's Rushmore, and etc., etc., and on and on. So that's always good when you find a little gateway into, oh, you like the design, you like the style, it's a little bit different. Well, have a look at this. Um, I wanted to talk about <laughs> a movie called Bug. Oh, Justine said, have you heard this movie called Bug? And I said, I don't know. And she said, William Friedkin directed it. He directed The Exorcist, so I'm all ears. Uh, and it was written by Tracy Letts, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. Uh, he's also an actor. But I was like, okay, let's watch this movie. And it was, language warning, completely fucked up. Just people having like a, a mental breakdown together, you know. Oh, you're having a, a, a little mental breakdown and uh, trapped in a house and with paranoia. How about I join you? Uh, when I think about the movie, if you want a description of how it makes you feel, I just have the taste of metal in my mouth. That's how I describe it, which there you go. If you're the type of person that's like, I want to watch that, then because of that description, then have at it. Yeah. So bug. Thank you, Justine, for showing me that one. Um, probably my two favorite movies that I saw in the cinema this year. One was Past Lives, which is, um set in 
South Korea and then eventually in Canada and then finally in New York. Uh, I really just enjoyed uh, the aspects of looking at how lives change over time. It starts off with these uh, two characters who walk each other home from school and uh, pretty heavy-handed symbolism. At the end of the day, they walk off in separate paths, basically a fork in the road. Uh, and then one of them, the, the girl, she moves, has to leave, emigrate to Canada and then finally America. And they reconnect. It sort of goes through time and they reconnect with Skype. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the Skype tune, but when that plays at a cinema, you very um, strong responses to it. Um, and then they meet up again, finally meet up in New York. Uh, again, not much happens in it. A lot of it's just tense trying to work out where these people stand and how they actually feel about each other. And it's sort of taught T-A-U-G-H-T, but it's not over the top. And I just, you really engage with that. But I won't go into too much detail about it because I've talked for long enough already. The other movie I've really enjoyed, uh, which will give you a sense of like Justine and I, was uh, I saw that this was showing and I came home and I said, oh, there's a movie I want to take you to. And she said, I want, uh, uh, okay, but I really want to go and see After Sun. And I said, well, that's what I've got the tickets for. So we went to watch this movie After Sun. It's Paul Mescal, uh, who is on a holiday with his daughter, I think in Spain. You'd think I'd look it up before. But anyway, he's on a holiday with his daughter, but he's also, he's separated from his, you know, his ex-wife, uh, who seems very nice and it always appears and is talked about in a nice way. It's not like, oh, your mother is a horrible person. Uh, but it's just him and his daughter uh, on a holiday. And it's about the daughter growing up and sadly, you know, realizing the flaws in their once perfect father figure. And it's also about a father who's really struggling with, I guess, his own mental health. Uh, and again, it's not over the top. It's not showy. It's not. There's no big explosion of emotion. It's all these little things, and the I guess the the ideas of what you pass on to your children, what you hope you pass on to your children, versus what they actually take from you. Um, maybe that's what resonated so much with you know people who have you know, nearly two teenage daughters. I have two teenage daughters. That makes it sound like they're, I have one and a half daughters, but two daughters, one 15, one 12. Um, and yeah, that idea of, you know, we can't control which pieces of us they take on, which pieces they reject. Often it's got nothing to do with that. Uh, and the last uh, movie I wanted to talk about was uh, also, just about the internet and how it works, was I saw uh, Patton Oswalt, of all people, in the Criterion Closet, where they get people, filmmakers, notable people, to go into the Criterion Collection and pick out movies, and they just talk about it, and you find really weird stuff that they like. That's where I saw Bill Hader uh, introduce me to this movie, House, or Hausu. It's Japanese. It's completely wacky. Uh... One of the only movies that you probably ever watch where you're like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. Does it make it good? Probably not. It's really strange. But anyway, it's not this Japanese horror. But uh, I saw Pat Oswald and he said, oh, wow, there's this movie here. It's called Pale Flower. 
It's from 1964. It's Japanese, and it's really cool, and it's very much of its time. Um, and then it has like this fantastic ending where the main character has to make a choice uh, and helps a girl uh, out trying to get her out of this funk that she's having this sort of existential crisis and the way he does it is really unexpected and I was like cool so the power of the internet meant that I saw that in the morning and then I was watching it that night uh, and it was uh, really interesting there a lot of the scenes start off around the sort of Japanese gambling houses and they never go so how do I play this game they never explain how the game works I have no idea is a lot of just like almost like dominoes and tile pieces going clickety clackety click. The sound the soundtracks sort of um, based on that as well. But it's this really weird era, 1964, where it's sort of breaking out of this convention. You can see like it's of its time, but it's it's like I'm sure in 1964 Japan it was this really sort of in some places avant-garde like it's very straight shot but then all of a sudden there might be a, a sort of surreal sequence or a, or where the camera starts spinning or the the um the world becomes fantastical um but it's really just like this hard-boiled gangster movie at the same time impeccably cool uh if i maybe i'll use a still from the movie uh when i put this episode up because you'll see like, oh, this is definitely 1964. Very cool hair, very cool sunglasses. Being a gangster, taking taking it for the team, um, going to jail for your boss in this like low-level underground crime syndicate. Um, and just a movie where I thought, oh, that was pretty good, and then I just kept thinking about it for ages afterwards. What a weird movie. Uh, and then finally, on this section, wow, 22 minutes, bloody hell. Uh, I just want to talk about The Bear, which is my favorite TV show at the moment. But season two, three episodes, incredible uh, in the second season. Honeydew, which was where Marcus goes to Copenhagen and learns how to make food and the importance of it. Um, forks, where Richie, the character, learns, oh, if we if you clean the forks perfectly, everything has to be perfect from there. Um, but Fishers, which I'm sure will appear on a lot of lists of best show, best episodes of the year, which was just the most tense Christmas Christmas special. It's a Christmas special. Christmas meal um, with some of the most tense scenes and Jamie Lee Curtis just swinging hard, going for it, just being a uh, an alcoholic, tense sort of reverberating vibrating presence in the whole show and um also featuring uh an amazing standoff between like two characters and even like two actors with completely different um emotion and and physicality like john bernthal and bob odenkirk just incredible sort of restraint and john mulaney's in it and sarah paulson and oliver platt and jillian Gillian, Gillian Jacobs, just everyone's in it and they're all just sitting around a table and it's all completely tense and everyone's trying to hold it together, which is kind of what the show's about really, um, is just holding everything together. If you haven't watched The Bear, um, you should. And that's all about I've got to say about that, I guess. Uh, let's have a little break and when we come back we'll talk a bit about music. It's an all I try. 
Take a brief moment to talk about music and such. I won't take up too much of your time. Basically, just put my Spotify wrapped up and everyone can listen because that would pretty much clearly indicate what was happening. But it also shows uh, the influence of other podcasts because uh, about halfway through the year, uh, producer Nick said, oh, there's a podcast about Daft Punk, which is like, which was called uh, Switched on Pop and they did a four-part series just on all Daft Punk's albums and their career and I listen to that, it's fascinating. Basically makes the case that the uh, robots of Daft Punk's, I guess, their career, their alter egos, how the, they evolve with each album, which was really cool. Anyway, that meant I listened to a lot of Daft Punk uh, sort of midway through the year and found some really cool old stuff and some live. The live album I, re- I reconnected with, Alive, I think, from 2007. That was really cool, but... <clears throat> really, the whole year was based on um, me really getting into boy genius and becoming a 17-year-old girl. Uh, that was just because most of my year 11 class, when they, well, not most, I say most, but was there quite a few of them, found out that I liked boy genius at the start of the year, always wanted to talk to me about boy genius, and, you know, all the artists, Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridges, Lucy Dacus, and then they were sharing memes with me. It all got a bit weird. I didn't need any of that stuff. But anyway, then the uh, their album, or the record, the record, came out in March. And I played that a lot. And then they released a uh, like four episodes, like the leftover bits that they didn't use. And I listened to that a lot. So that was they were uns- unsurprisingly uh, the artists I listened to the most. So... A lot of Boy Genius, a lot of Florence and The Machine, because I went and saw Florence in March, which was probably like the, maybe like the best weekend of the year. Um, We had people over one night. Uh, They were uh, saying, it was a long weekend, and they said, oh, uh, tomorrow uh, we're going to see like the Freestylers uh, play at like this pub in, in Canberra. You should come. And we were like, okay. So then on the Sunday we went to just this bar in Canberra uh, where the freestylers who were really big late 90s, early 2000s uh, artists uh, did a DJ set and everyone there was our age. So it started at 3 in the afternoon and uh, we were home by about 8.30 and that was tremendous. Uh, what a great time that was. At around 6 o'clock, 6, 7 o'clock, a new group of people all turned up, all fancily dressed, all much younger uh, they were had been at the races all day, so that was even more exciting for them, including, of course, some ex-students of mine who got so excited. Uh, and this will tell you, I think, where society is headed in terms of young people. They were clearly off their faces um, and having a great time. They'd been at the races all day. They said, oh, awesome, that's great. Can I? Can we get a photo with you? It's been, I guess I taught them seven years ago and I said yeah sure they asked my permission as if I was like someone famous they said are we allowed to post this on social media and I thought oh that's a new 
uh, a new uh, development in young people? And I said, yes, that would be fine. So that was nice because they were not the type of people in 2016 who would have cared about how other people felt. Let me put it that way with those particular boys. Anyway, so that was on the Sunday. And then the Monday night, or was it Tuesday? It doesn't matter. Uh, we went to Sydney and we went to see Florence and the Machine, which was awesome. And the second time I've seen her, it was really cool to hear that the music that she performed, you know, when she broke in 2008, 2009, uh, it sounded different. She had to sing it in a different way because her voice is different. I always like that when you go and hear artists and they... It wasn't like, oh, she can't hit that note anymore. She just sort of changed the organisation and the... Um, they just sounded different because obviously her voice is different. But that was a great concept. I mean, her fans... I mean, she could run a cult pretty easily, the way her fans react to her and... Um, how they dress and how they respond. Uh, a lot of young people, uh, a lot of... Um, well, let me just say, not a lot of people my age and uh, my sexuality. Let's just put it that way, shall we? And that's just based on appearance only. I shouldn't be judging people. And I'm not judging. But anyway, we had a great time. Um, we also went and saw presets do a um, DJ set for the producer's birthday um we spoke about that that was pretty awesome too um but yes it's all been building up to um taylor swift's concert in i don't know 86 days i've got a countdown so i can maybe not listen to them as much uh taylor swift obviously invaded my top five most played artists this is not a bit um my kids commandeer the music when we're in the car and uh, yes, from about July onwards, there was a lot of Taylor Swift in the car. So yes, third most played artist on my Spotify wrapped, which was annoying. Uh, but anyway, uh, my daughter got to see the Arctic Monkeys at the start of the year. Uh, that was her first ever concert. Justine took her. She had a great time. She also learned the valuable lesson that we've all learned, or hopefully all learned, that if you're recording the band playing on your phone, don't sing, and especially don't sing if you're crying from emotion as well. She learned that when she had to show everyone all the great bits from the concert, but it was, you know, couldn't really hear the singer over the sound of her. It was lovely. It made me very proud and very happy for her when your kids can go and see a concert of people they love. And um, that'll be them going to see Taylor Swift. I won't be there. I don't want to go and see Taylor Swift. But I do have an outfit picked to be a Taylor Swift dad who stands outside looking unimpressed that the show is going for a very long time. Uh, but one of the problems with Spotify and certainly their rap list is you tend to just play a lot of the songs from previous lists. So some of the songs of like, you know, repeat from a year to year. doesn't really give a, a good sense of what I listen to, but certainly at the top. A lot of sad uh, late 20s women singing about uh, their mental health. And also... Uh, I really, 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 really liked uh, Little Sims's album, No Thank You. I think it came out the end of last year. I've always liked Little Sims. Uh, I found um, her music probably like three or four years ago. She had a song called Selfish, which I really liked. That was 2019. And then you know, her album before this was uh, Sometimes I Might Be an Introvert, I Believe. Uh, and there were a lot of good songs on that album, but this uh, latest album 
had like two of my, uh, not only like my, obviously my favourite songs of the year, but also two songs that I got completely obsessed with, Angel and um, Gorilla, which uh, I'll play a little bit of it here. Um, again, I'll move on. We'll have a little listen to this and then I will um, talk about books for the rest of the time. So enjoy this song, which I got obsessed with, and then uh, pass it on to as many people as possible. And uh, it's, yeah, my favourite song of the year. It's Little Sims' Gorilla. I ain't got one threat to consider Heaven and earth attached to one pillar one, one. Rest in peace to Mac Miller New Sims drop to shake the whole shit up What's next? We'll be here for months talking about prospects Staying on my job, yes sir When rain is against her I'm river resistant on my polyester Run through the jungle, they should have never let her Cut some wounds, I hope never will fester mm, yeah, big art collector Silent investor, film director Beating on my chest, going ape shit, putting in a grave shit. Think like what you make it, yeah, is. Oh yes, don't it sound just so good? Okay, I'm gonna just finish off uh, as I did the last couple of years with uh, the books that I read, uh, and again, like uh, I always like reading but it was only really the pandemic 2021 we went into lockdown and reading really helped my sanity as it did for so many people just to do something that wasn't doom scrolling and looking at misery and uh i've kept going so i think last year i read 50 books and this year it's uh over 60 now i don't know what current book 64 or 65 uh, and yeah, that's just what I do. The, now the books that I've got uh, ready to read, they stare at me and mock me if I don't uh, get to them. Now rather than go through all of the books, and I thought it would be easy for me and easier for you to listen to, if I just went through like a top 10 of sorts, just the 10 books I read this year, not the best of 2023, but just the best books that I read this year. Uh, and then it sort of spans you know, modern text and then some classics as well that I got to. Um, and in no particular order, except the last two, which are definitely my favourites of the year. So let's get to some books. And uh, I don't know, I never know how this sounds listening to it, whether it's interesting or whether you just skip or don't listen. But that's all right. I guess it's best not to think about it. Anyway, here are the honourable mentions. Um... I read a crazy, crazy, crazy book. Let's just call it absurd, shall we? Rather than crazy. A book called Milkfed by Melissa Broder, one of the YouTubers I follow, Dakota Warren. She was like, read this book. It's really strange. Uh, great character voice. Really weird. Very strange. Uh, it's about parenting and it's about sexuality and it's uncomfortable sexuality and and I guess what fantasies pop into our heads at certain moments that we either choose to or not to pursue um, really strange in some parts uh, one of those books where I was like did I think it's great I don't know but I'm glad I read it because it was certainly very different and I think uh, when you read a lot that's all you're looking for a lot of the times is they can't all be great, they can't all be classics, but at least if it's doing something different or 
making you react. That's what I'm after. Uh, I read The Quiet American, which is an old Graham Greene novel. Uh, kind of uh, a really interesting character study of a uh, guy in the early 1950s in Vietnam. The French are losing control. The Americans are slowly making their way uh, into the country to get more involved. Um, very uh, prescient, is that the word? To get an idea of like what was coming and what what they what even the character, i.e. Graham Greene, thought was going to happen with all these people getting involved in Southeast Asia. Um, there was a 1958 film version which uh, changed the whole point of uh, the novel. So it was like justified that America got involved in Southeast Asia. So that was good to read about afterwards. It was like, oh, that sucks. Uh, but a really excellent book. Uh, kind of gross men, though, leching on 18-year-old uh, locals. Yeah. I don't know. Cousin Glenn? Um, we also... I also read Towelhead by Alicia Arian. And the tricky part of that book is... It, it was given to me by a Year 10 student, and it's actually looking at a 13-year-old uh, girl who is coming uh, to terms with her own sexual awakening. And the idea of how do you write about a 13-year-old's confusing sexual awakening with the adults who are either abusing her or neglecting her, how do you write about it without... Like it's for a younger audience. How graphic should you be? Uh, is it certainly would be controversial if it was more well known? Um, you get very angry at the adults, and I think that's the point: is that when you're 13 to 14 and you don't understand anything, uh, but you think you do, and you want to be more adult, um, it's really the adult's responsibility to do the guiding, not to do the either ignoring or the abusing. Uh, but a really interesting way of like it's very confronting and very graphic in its sexual nature. Um, but it would be interesting to talk about and interesting to talk about with students. Uh, I also read Heat and Dust, Ruth Prawa Jabvala. That's as best as I can do. Uh, which I really enjoyed, but the reason I mention it here is for Wigo. Hi, Wigo is that we had to read that in year 11, and it's, why? Why did, why did we choose this book to read in year 11? Uh, it's a very adult book. It's a book of self-exploration, and then looking back on a um, controversial member of the family from the 1920s who had an affair. Um, it's about rights of the Indian population uh, with the British Raj and all of that stuff. Um, and just, why why... Did, I mean, I think I ha really suspect my, our teacher was an old hippie that was like, cool, I've been to India, I did the hippie trail. Um, let's read this book about a sexual awakening in the 70s, but also a cultural awakening in the 20s. But, like, I don't know, maybe I do the same. Maybe I do the same with students where we give them books and then we say, can you express uh, how this book explores the human condition? And they're 17 and they're like, I don't know, and we get frustrated. With, Why haven't you thought about how these characters relate and what happens when they don't have life experience. I don't know. I read Wifedom by Anna Funda, which is about George Orwell's wife and how she was written out of history, but it's about how women get written out of history and, and who does the writing out of history and 
the basically how biographies work and how we eliminate people who help uh, people achieve, not just women, but in general. We just like that person was the best, and we just we just do. We don't have time to talk about the people that helped or actually um, brought this to their attention, or, or the editors. It's really a, a book, I think maybe that looks at as well editing and how um, if you've got if you're George Orwell and your wife's really an excellent editor and they come back and say no 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 you have to do this and fix this and then you fix it and your stories are better for it but then you never mention them and that's uh, interesting but I mean not a surprise to anyone especially in the 40s also that George Orwell doesn't seem like a particularly nice fellow uh, in terms of how he treated others uh, I read um, The Hummingbird Effect which is by the Australian author Kate Mildenhall I've read Skylarking by her fantastic books um, excellent Australian author. This one's set across four different time, four, maybe five timelines, can't remember. Uh, and that was pretty cool. Um, dealing with pandemic and post-pandemic and, and uh, but the Justine read it before me and we agreed the most sort of visually arresting things was about uh, an abattoir in the 1930s, uh, which is just a horrific place to work with the uh, ideal of unionism and all this stuff coming in. Uh, I read The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. That was pretty cool as well. Uh, again, looking at how women are sort of uh, written out of history in terms of language. Men wrote the first dictionary, so a lot of language that women used regularly, just not in there. Uh, and uh, Maggie O'Farrell. It wouldn't be end of year list if I didn't put a Maggie O'Farrell book in. The one we read this year was The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox. Uh, who, like Ma Maggie O'Farrell, just has this ability to sort of really break your heart in certain ways. Um, and I think I wrote, I, I wanted to speak to her about why she has to do that to make the audience so sad. Um, some parts of it were the reason why I didn't make the top 10, even though she writes characters so well, is that some of it was a bit unnecessary. But anyway... I've talked enough already, but let us let me just go through the 10 in no particular order. Now, the, the first one I want to talk about is uh, called Eleanor Knows. It's by Claudia Pinera. She's an Argentinian uh, author. It's shortish, um, and it's about the pain, really, of being a woman. Great, huh? An older woman um, who is battling a disease, so she's not happy with her own body, uh, is trying to find an answer to what happened to her daughter. Something's happened to her daughter, but she doesn't believe the official um, word. So it's kind of marketed as a, a crime novel, like a mystery or a whodunit, but it's not really. Uh, and that's a problem with marketing is that you start reading and thinking, oh, okay, well, crime novel, crime novel. And then about halfway through, you're like, well, this isn't a crime novel. I wish I'd started again not thinking it was a crime novel and or that there was going to be a mystery to uncover, that it was just about uh, how women have con problems controlling their own body, literally with the main character being old and uh, having a painful disease and struggling to move, but also the other women that are in the book who struggle with control of their autonomy of their own body. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more it opened up and the better it became, which is the mark of a great book. That's Eleanor Knows. Should be writing these down. Claudia Pinera. I also read uh, Shaggy Bane 
by Douglas Stewart. It won the Booker Prize in 2021. And it's just one of those books where you just got straight into that world, Glasgow in the 1980s, immediately. Uh, it's a book more about the mother than it is about the young son who's called Shuggy or Shuggy. I can't remember. Shuggy, maybe? Uh, it is very realistic and very sad. I'm sure it's from the author's own experiences growing up in Glasgow in the 80s. It's very dreary. Uh, it's actually, I read that and then I read the Esme Lennox book and it was set in the same place in Scotland, but in a much different class setting. This is much more working class. Um, and again, very well observed. Hard to explain a very crushing, uh, sad, depressing book about alcoholism, uh, but kind of made you feel warm while you read it. I don't quite know how that uh, how that works. I guess that's why it won a lot of awards. Very accurate depiction of alcoholism and being the child of an alcoholic uh, and the three children in particular and how they handle the same person in three remarkably different ways. So that's Shuggy or Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. Uh, the next one, which if you're on BookTok, if you're on BookTube, you would know, is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Uh, I think I've written here after reading three books in a row about disturbed teenagers, this is a delight. So I'm guessing my students, the readers in particular, they like to fang me their books uh, and often, uh, well, 100% of the time this year, those readers were uh, young women and they all uh, like reading books about disturbed teenagers and disturbing things. Dark academia, as it's called, on the internet. Uh, but this book was just really good about characters. A book about characters, a book about um, working together and collaboration. Um, I loved the characters. They were really, I thought, authentically drawn. One of those books with like about 80 pages left, I started to get sad because it was going to end. That's the best recommendation you can get. Um, the characters of Sadie and Sam are just good as individuals, good as characters together, complicated. I don't think enough is written about love between creative collaboration, uh, which is kind of the, the through line of this book, that the, it's not a will-they-won't-they they couple. It's just these two people that when they collaborate and work together they will do the best work and what that actually means in terms of in terms of their own individual happiness and their other relationships is the uh, I guess the beautifully drawn part of it um, because the, the only other version of this is like when we talk about band usually male people males in bands that work collaboratively and have this love uh, and we don't usually see it just written in such a I guess, a nuanced and sort of empathetic way. Really well drawn. And also, if you are a gamer, it really goes through the history of, um, I think, from the 90s onwards, about how games are created in a way that's not like, hey, stupid person, I will teach you about how games are created. Uh, or maybe it is. Maybe I'm the stupid person and you liked it. But I wonder if you were well into these things, whether you found it, you know, a little simplistic rather than uh, having that nuance there. The next one I wanted to look at 
was called How High We Go in the Dark by Sakoya Nagamatsu. Uh, this book is about the pandemic, uh, or a pandemic, but it is about the pandemic, but it's time, it's uh, linked to global warming in the near future. Uh, and it's just vignettes from different times and characters. And some of the characters are related. Some of them pop up in other of the vignettes. It's a bit wobbly in some parts, a bit repetitious, but some sections are just stunning um, in their humanity and their discussion on uh, how we deal with the living, but also how we deal with the bereaved and how we deal with the dead. It also has one of the saddest and most harrowing uh, I've written here the most harrowing, gentle horror sections in any book ever, uh, which I will leave it at that. Um, the other book, uh, so that was How High We Go in the Dark, Sequoia Nagamatsu. Uh, I've got another book by Caleb Azuma Nelson. Uh, I love this author. His The latest book he wrote this year was called Small Worlds. Um, his first book was Open Water. I think I talked about it on previous podcasts, how much I loved it. Um, I love this one too. The characters are, are really well lived in. They're really drawn out. The world feels real. His exploration of family, um, similar to Open Water, about this like shared family experience, shared family trauma, um, where your roots are, going back to the country where your family's from and not fitting in in that country, but feeling like it's more home than the home you live in. Uh, but something he does that you don't read about enough, well, I haven't read about enough, is about male vulnerability and how we portray male vulnerability uh, and how in the book, how it is protected. What we do with um, vulnerable young men, emotional young men or or um, fragile young men and how we actually deal with them is what he is interested in. And he really takes his time with these characters and with these books to sort of show you what someone who feels so much as a young man, uh, do they have to hide it? Is that guarded as almost like a family secret? That's really great. That's Small World, Caleb Azuma Nelson. Not the boxer. I read uh, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens by Shankari uh, Chandran, uh, Australian uh, story set in Sydney, but it's also the story of Sri Lankan civil war and displacement of, of peoples and a history. Uh, it's pretty current, a lot of parallel, sadly, uh, and I figure it's paralleled in the past and it'll be paralleled again in the future when you displace a whole um, amount of people and then try to destroy the culture that they're left behind. There's a scene in here where they, the uh, opposing forces do their best to destroy a library that's got uh, hun hundreds of documents that are hundreds of years old to actually destroy the history of a group of people. Uh, I loved the exploration of the Civil War, um, probably more than the discussion of race in the present Australia, Australian time. It really sort of addresses mainstream Australia's desire to um, frame their racism as defending a history. So uh, that we need to preserve our history 
but our history is racist, but we don't want to acknowledge that our history is racist. We want to say that well, that's, that's our culture. That's where we came from. And, and saying that's bad would mean you're saying I'm bad. Um, it's, a, it's a great book club read. I found, and this is hilarious when I was reading this, that the the only white character, um, well, one the only main white character in the novel, uh, is probably the most unrealistic character because he's a representation of mainstream Australian racism, uh, which is what happens in terms of appropriation when people write outside their own experience and. You've, you've read this in hundreds of other books where they use one character who's a, in a minority to represent a whole lot of people. What tends to happen is sort of simplistic reactions. So they just become the measure of what you want to say about that issue. Um, that's been happening all the way through history. In reverse, where the white male author writes about, oh, he's a, he's a, a genderqueer person. Here is a... Um, uh, well, I mean, like even here is a woman. Um, uh, here is a person from another culture. But they're, they're going to explain to the white people uh, about what that means and explain rules to them and basically tell the white person that they're doing a good job. Um, but in this case, it was interesting to read it that the white character, I was like, okay, I, I find what they're doing not unrealistic, but as an individual unrealistic, as a society, it all made sense. Um, but as an individual... I don't know. Um, that was interesting to read. Uh, okay, the next two I want to talk about are um, classics, um, which are The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells uh, and Cannery Row by John Steinbeck. Um, the Invisible Man was actually given to me as a gift from one of my Year 10 students uh, and had written on the inside, I read this last summer and I think this is the best book I've ever read. Uh, and it's pretty darn great it's one of those books that you read that you're like well i've heard of the invisible man i um i've never read the hg wells version and then you read it and i don't know what page i was on like three or four and i was really creeped out really the description of this person uh who is in this sort of uh, boarding house in london and I don't know if that's right, uh, but it might be um, in a boarding house, and the people try and he's completely wrapped up uh, due to an accident, as he tells people. But everyone's trying to get a peek at him through his door and and see what's happening. And one person sees him, like eating or opening his mouth, and just it's all darkness. And uh, the, I don't know. I just found it really creepy. So it's creepy at the beginning, and then it sort of t- develops into this sort of monster. Um, the Invisible Man sort of becomes a, a monstrous figure. People are spreading rumours about him. Are the rumours true? And um, there's a few perspective shifts in there as well. But uh, I think it would be a great book to teach because it's a lot about identity and what we do to people who are different uh, and what we what happens to people when you call them a monster. Do they act like monsters? In this case, yes. All right, and Cannery Row, John Steinbeck, completely different in tone. Just uh, written in like the about the kind of slum area of uh, Los Angeles in the 1930s uh, during the Depression. Not in any way I thought, oh, this is going to be depressing, Grapes of Wrath style um, of Mice and Men, but not really. He obviously just sat and was around these people 
and just made took notes and wrote about them i found them so the people so entertaining so real uh so frustrating um you know a lot of people who have really good ideas and could be the president one day but oh let's just get wasted cool yeah i've got a scheme we'll make millions all right oh we fell asleep no oh, that's what happens we got drunk celebrating and we fell asleep very some of it's quite cartoonish um it really reminded me of where I grew up, uh, not in terms of that kind of stuff, but, you know, where I grew up uh, and where I played cricket. There are a lot of people I played cricket with who um, worked in the abattoirs, and uh, some of the stories they would tell me on a Saturday when we played cricket, what did you do last night? And they'd tell you a story, and you'd be like, what? Just, you know, like, where, that's an adventure. It sounds a bit terrifying at some part of the night, uh, and that usually happens, I think, with this... Uh, area is that there's a lot of fun times but there's always a turn there's always a turn and there's uh, always someone on edge but that's cannery row yeah john steinbeck uh great um and now the last two yep and then we'll wrap it up uh the last two books i have uh number two like i said none of none of these were in any particular order except the last two the second best book i read this year was foster by claire keegan um the end of last year, I read Small Things Like These, which was another Claire Keegan book. They're very short stories, 110 100 to 130 pages um, set in Ireland. And somehow she sort of fits the whole world into a small book. Um, fits ideas of identity. Um, I don't know. It's about heart. It's about your heart and who your family is and who you choose to love and how you get over loss. And um, do you experience loss that's not people leaving you, but more about experiencing loss of what could have been? Or, you know, it's, it's glib to say like the grass is always greener. But in this case, in the case of Foster, it's about a young girl who is in a poor family. The mum's about to have yet another child. Uh, and they basically farm the girl off for a summer to go and spend with some distant relatives. Uh, and they live in a much more country estate and a bigger place and a different uh, outlook on life um, than she's used to at home. Um, again, another book set in Ireland with uh, alcoholism pr quite prominent and family violence. Um and somehow she manages, Claire Keegan manages just to tell a story that is short and compelling and simple and, I don't know, has this kind of purity to it, which is a term I never thought I would use to describe a book. But also, um, yeah, broke my heart. And uh, it was one of the few times in my life I remember gasping in a book. Um, and then... If I explain to you what I gasped at, you might say, well, that's cheesy as, and you'll be right. But when you when it's earned, I guess, then it uh, is so much better. It's not, just, uh, it's not just a scene that's crowbarred in there to manipulate. It's, yeah, earned. That's uh, Foster by Claire Keegan. I, I wrote when I read it, my notes on it were, just read it. So there you go. And that brings us to our number one book, do, 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 do. We'll be back after this break. Just, no, it's a lie. Uh, it's Ocean Vong's 
uh, on earth were briefly gorgeous and i probably annoyed so many people with recommending this book i probably bought four or five copies this year for people uh it's a book about race identity uh, immigrant story a queer story a middle american narcotic story uh it's about family and growing up with a family who are uh Vietnamese immigrants in America, in middle America, um, and dealing with that and dealing with how you treat people from your own culture versus how you treat people from the culture you uh, have moved to. It's about, um, I guess, similar to past lives in the in the term and the idea of uh, feeling displaced and feeling more uh, American and also more Vietnamese, depending on who you're with, and that being really unstable. Uh, and then when you meet this, the character, when they meet Vietnamese people, they don't feel Vietnamese, but they don't feel American. They feel more Vietnamese when they're talking to Americans. But that's really not the, the focus of it. It's, I don't know, it's poetic, it's heart-rendering. I wrote this down, and this is the most pretentious thing I've ever... If I read it, it was if it was on the blurb, I would not read the book. I would say, that's dumb. But this is what I wrote. I wrote, I've never been moved more by the spirit of a book. Like, gross. But that's what I wrote, and that's how I felt. I just couldn't believe how you can put... Um, I don't know, that much of yourself? Eh, that's not the right term because it's... I don't know if it's Ocean Vong's story um, 100%, but I don't know how you create a character that feels so real, that you feel their pain so much without them telling you, I feel pain, but just being like, oh my God, this this life that you're leading is is so challenging and you are striving for power and scrambling for any kind of power you have. And that is such a challenge when you are displaced or your family's displaced or you your identity is struggling between whether you're American or whether you're Vietnamese, whether you're straight or gay. Um, and I mean, if you want a slight teaser of a story, there is a bit where... The character, who's the mother calls Little Dog, needs to sit his mother down and tell her a secret that he's never shared with anyone else and he, he's desperate to and it's built up in him and he says, I I've got to tell you a secret. And he tells her his secret and he waits for the blow, I guess. He waits for her to react. And she says, mm, that's all right. I've got a secret. And she tells his secret, and oh my god, it is not what you expect. And it's just devastating at times. Um, is it funny at times? I don't know. You're so attached to the characters. Um, some parts of it are really hard going. But again, um, that's my favorite book of the year, Ocean Vong's On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. And, uh, yeah, that's been my list of books. It's about 30 minutes. Wow, okay. Um, all right, well, it's time to go. 
it's the end of 2023. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Uh, I will uh, point out I don't really have clips from like favorite episodes or podcasts or things like that. Uh, but I loved um, uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus's uh, podcast, which is called Wiser Than Me. Uh, of course, I mean Julia Louis Dreyfus. Sometimes my wife looks like her, so. I'm a little biased about how much I love her, but I'm sure a lot of people love her as well because she's pretty terrific in everything she's ever done. Um, but her podcast is episodes with older women uh, because she that's the whole point, is that they don't really have a voice. I think if you looked up her podcast, the episode with Jane Fonda uh, got a lot of press just because it was pretty... Um, eye-opening and honest and you know discussing the issues of getting older but i think my favorite episode maybe of any podcast of the year was her episode with isabel allende which was just a beautiful discussion about death and um really like i mean isabel allende's uh (laughs) exploration of death is there was a lot um in her life but just Discussing it from the point of view of an old person, it's interesting listening to the different people she interviews about their attitudes to how they feel at their age. Some of them are like, oh, I'm so over it. I hate being old. And some of them are like, it's the happiest I've been. Um, so I don't know, that honesty of an older, of the older women that she interviews uh, is great. But the one with Isabel Allende is uh, probably my favorite podcast episode of anything um, throughout the year and at the end of every episode she calls her mum uh i can't remember how old she is but she must be i don't know 90s maybe 80s 90s uh who she still calls mummy i guess she's still her mummy even though if you're 60 you still have a mummy uh and she calls her mum every at the end of every episode and tells her and uh that's equal parts like amazing to listen back to and sometimes hilarious um but yeah that's that's probably my favorite uh new podcast that I've listened to this year and I uh, found out fairly recently there's going to be season two which I thought there would be that's wiser than me anyway that's all from me thank you again uh we will be back in the new year at some stage uh thank you for listening thank you again to those few people who made your or this podcast the number one podcast for them on their spotify wrapped that's sort of pretty great um if you want to tell me who you are, that would be cool too, but you don't have to. But it would be nice to know. Send me a message. Email at uh, chatteringpod at gmail.com or you can message me at Instagram, chatteringclassespod. You can find me there. Uh, let me know. Let me know if I was uh, in your top 10 or top 5, whatever it was. Uh, and let me know if you were, if I was uh, number 1. Uh, and I will send something to you. Probably not. Uh, but, you know, I'll send kudos to you. And as we always say... Nothing like getting kudos for nothing. Uh, Thank you again. And uh, that's it. 